If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. And I said, well, let me give me a try. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll go home. Like I, I, I said, no, I can't do this. And then he kept pushing. And I said, okay, fine. I'll go home. Give me, give me a week. If I can write 10,000 words in a week, and you guys pay me at that rate, um, I can pay my rent and my, my, my fixed bills, and, and I'll, I'll do it. But I have to see if I can do 10,000 words in a week. So that meant 2,000 words a day. And that meant 2,000 publishable words a day. And my writing process is, I think, pretty different than most people's. Most people write way faster. I am terribly slow. Blue Planet has a rabid fan base, and for good reason. The mechanics, the world, and the overall setting combine into a game that other creators regularly cite as their creative influence. Jeff and I talk about one-on-one gaming and his work at Pagan Games. It was interesting to find out that the seeds of Blue Planet really came from an abandoned future setting for Call of Cthulhu supplement. The story of getting the first edition of Blue Planet ready for Origins is quite a roller coaster. And we dig into the goals of Blue Planet 3rd edition and what it means to write a believable future setting. We learn his personal favorite role playing game, and it's likely one you've never heard of. This episode is brought to you in part by some of our newest supporters on Patreon. A big thanks goes to Victor Wyatt, Lucas Falk, DOE, Eric Salzweedle, and Who's Carl. Because of them and the other 100 plus patrons, I'm able to put out content on a weekly basis. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Jeff. Okay, do you want to search for any traps? Go ahead and roll. No successes. Uh, yeah, you don't find any traps. Hi, this is Greg. And this is Derek with co-designers of Limelight. You're currently hanging out on the third floor listening to Tabletop Talk. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Jeff Barber of Biohazard Games, the makers of Blue Planet. Jeff, welcome to the third floor. Hey, how are you? Thank you for having me. I'm good. So, oh, it's my pleasure. And I really have been looking forward to this because, um, I had took a huge break from RPGs when I came back, you know, I kind of dove into and that's really where a lot of this, the podcasting came from is me kind of rediscovering RPGs. And, you know, as I started to meet people who I quickly aligned with and, you know, agreed with your name kept coming up. Everybody, Craig, have you checked out Blue Planet? Have you checked out Blue Planet? Do you like this? You, well, in Blue Planet, this is how we do this. So I've really been looking forward to this. It's very generous of you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, So, and I'm sure you've had to do this before on previous podcasts, so I'll apologize in advance, but one of the things that I always find interesting is uh, kind of your gaming origin story. So there was a moment in your life where you knew nothing about this hobby, and then it was put in front of you for the first time. Can we go back to that moment? Yeah, it's a, it's, I don't know if it's a, it's a weird story. It's, it's probably typical in a a lot of ways, but there's some funny elements to it. Um, So it it makes it a a funny tale. Uh, I was probably, 12 or 13 years old. Uh, I was living in rural Alaska at the time. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
my uh well it's not rural by alaskan standards but by anybody else's standards it's pretty rural. my i was trying to envision metropolitan alaska yeah yeah right uh my my mom worked at a little i think it's fair to call it a craft store um and i don't even know if those kinds of places exist anymore but it was like a little independent like you could go there and you could buy um everything from like paint by numbers to actual like canvases and oil paints and and tools for doing um like leather work and just odd sorts oh, of wow. things that I, I don't know are, are really kind of something you can't get anywhere but online these days um but they had a little tiny gaming section for some reason like tiny um and that i and i remember that high on the shelf was a copy of magic realm by or magic realm by uh, avalon hill it was this boxed kind of role-playing slash board game mostly board game yep. Um, and it's famous for having, it, it, it's pretty well respected considering when it came out, but it was also had a really dense rule set. And, uh, I, I would come by the store after school and I would always, it was, I remember it being up on a shelf higher than I could reach. So I spent a lot of time just looking at the box cover and then somehow it must've been for Christmas. It must've been Christmas, maybe a birthday present. Um, I got my mom to get it for me. And I didn't know what it, really what it was. And at 12 years old, opening this box, the, the rules book was super, rule book was super dense. One of the classic, like, right. 1.11, 1 1.12, 1.133, <laughs> right? Like, Avalon and, Hill. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And I, and I remember sitting at the kitchen table for hours over the course of a couple of weekends trying to decipher how this thing worked. I was so excited, all these Texas with these maps, map components, build your own map and all these characters, still a very vague idea of what it was all supposed to do. And the rules weren't really helping. Right. Trouble was in the middle of trying to figure this out, I got sick. I got a really bad case of the flu. So through the course of this like weekend, just trying to grok this thing, I just got sicker and sicker and sicker. And so by the end of the weekend, I'm throwing up um, and, and, you know, get better move on, try and go back to the game. And every time I even look at the box, I start to get nauseous again because I just like somehow psychosomatically connected, like laboring through this rule book to, to the feelings of nausea. And I'm, and I'm not exaggerating. I, if I see a picture of the cover now, I still, get, I still get a little qualm in my stomach. And, and even as a, a 56 years old now, just turned 56. And I, I can think back to when I was 12 and still have the same like stomach like little little curling in my Isn't stomach. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, right. <laughs> so so fast forward a year or two. Um, I'm now living in Boston, so I've transitioned from rural Alaska to like major metropolitan area. Um, in a huge high school, like there's more kids in this high school than were in my whole town before. Um, right. And and I'm in homeroom, and I'm this weird kid from Alaska, and there's this other weird kid who who like. I just strike up conversations with because we seem to be kind of like-minded. And at some point, he's talking about Dungeons and Dragons. And I have no idea what he's talking about, but he's going on and on about it. And I'm like, well, I got this game called Magic Realm. And he's like, oh, really? Let's play. And I'm like, uh-oh, I don't feel so good thinking about this game. And I literally like go home to get the game to bring it to school. And I can't because I'm feeling sick. And uh, That's so, so I'm like, I, I can't, I'm sorry. I, I, and I'm 
seems weird. I'm embarrassed. I just don't want to play this game because it's making me nauseous or nauseated, whatever. And um, he says, well, let's, let's play D and D then. It's kind of like that. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And I'm a little trepidatious. Cause you know, I, I'm still having these like psychosomatic flashbacks. <laughs> and one day after school, we, we go to his house and uh, he, we make up a character uh, and I, I, to be honest, I'm not even sure what edition it was. It must have been. It was 1980. So whatever the edition was then, is that is that AD and D? Is that? Um, well, I would have been 80. Would it could have been White Box at that point, right? It wasn't. Uh, it was, it was a book. Come out it yet? Was, it was a bigger book. Anyway, it was, it was 1980. Whatever it was. Um, it may. Yeah. It, uh, and and to be honest, I didn't discover until years later that I don't think we were actually even following the rules. He had, had, he, <laughs> had played in, he had played in somebody's game, and I think he was just using the character sheet as a way to like, yeah, tr- track what we were doing. But uh, he ran a, a solo game, me and uh, as the only player. And you know, a couple hours later, I was absolutely most fan- fantastic thing I'd ever done. I, I couldn't get enough, uh, and we played together for uh, part of that part of that school year. And I ended up getting my own books later that summer, I think for my birthday or something. Um, and that was it. I was off and running. Um, I, I didn't have a very wide circle of gamers and it wasn't, wasn't, um, I, I never really played with a lot of different people, but every chance I got, it was, it was, play, it was D&D for sure. So there's a, there's a couple of things that's interesting about that for me. One is I'm amazed because it happened with me too. But as I talk to more and more people about how their beginnings, is how common like long-term duet gaming was with one GM and one player, because there was no find a friend internet yeah. or anything. You just, you know, you just had maybe one guy knew how to play and would spend hours, you know, I would do it too. And I wonder, um, like it kind of disappeared a little bit. It seems like, right. Um, is it, do you find something special about that or do you reminisce about that at all? Or are you you're glad you don't have to do it just one-on-one? Well, it's funny you ask that. Um, I, I think the reason it disappeared in part was because there was this expectation that you had a party. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I also, um, I never steered away from it. In fact, um, as I got more into gaming and found other people that did it, much of my gaming in high school was one-on-one. Um, yeah. it just, just because there was no internet to find other people. I didn't have a, uh, despite living in Boston, I didn't really have a, a good game store that was local. Um, I mean, game stores in the early 80s weren't that common anyway. Um, but right. I, I didn't have a, a bulletin board where I could put um, up names. And, you know, I'm just a dumb kid. I, I, I guess I didn't have the imagination to, to think, well, maybe there's other kids at school. Maybe there's like clubs. Maybe there's um, other groups that might want players. You know, there's, there were probably ways to, to find people at your school that had similar interests. But I didn't think to seek beyond the immediate, oh, you're into D&D? Okay, so let's just play D&D. Well, and for, I think for some of the younger people listening that aren't as old as you and I are, they don't, I don't know if they fully realize how in the closet we were um, oh, with these sure. types of hobbies. Um, you know, if I, I make the joke sometimes that we had to go to the underpass and kind of nudge and make a wink at each other and say, do you, do you know how to play D&D? I like D&D. Yeah, definitely a code where you weren't talking about it unless you were positive that the other person was receptive, for sure. Well, I was just say, I wonder how we inherited that because no one ever said don't talk about it, right? <sighs> 
it, that is a really you know what i have never thought about that and you know god i don't know i mean there's this teenager this teenagers have this instinct for, for standing out in a way like being yeah being a way to avoid standing out and maybe that was part of it uh, it was just so nerdy that we just knew in our in our nerd souls that it was not something that we could broadcast yeah, and it wasn't exclusive to RPGs, right? I was I was a huge comic book fan. I was a huge fantasy and sci-fi fiction fan. And I like had my, you know, couple friends that I would talk to about that and we would bond. I mean, like lifelong bonds made, you know, over those shared subjects, but we didn't do it outside of our circle. Um, you know, and it was um it was very clicky, um especially when I was living in a smaller town, but that is a damn good question, Jeff. I'm going to like think about that and explore that a little bit. And I, you know, I've talked about the transition uh, with with other guests. How how did we get to where we are now? Where you know you have movie stars um, that play Superman showing pictures of their Warhammer on Instagram. Right, 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 you know? right. um, it's it's amazing. But I could never have imagined um, back then what what we would be experiencing now. What what yeah, is comparatively a, gold, a golden age? Yeah, very much so. Um, so let's go back to high school. You're you're playing D and D. Um, I I'd be really I'm always interested to know what was the next game. So D and D was pretty much you know for many of us the only game that was available. Uh, for the reasons that you listed, right? There's not a ton of game stores because Magic the Gathering hadn't come out yet, and you know we were limited on what we could get our hands on. But what it's always fascinating is what the next game is. So what did you end up grabbing onto next and loving? So I, I must have been in an overpass and I must have whispered to somebody, um, but, but I found an, uh, a couple other people that played and uh, they had a little circle and they were playing uh, Chivalry and Sorcery or Sorcery and Chivalry. Oh, wow. Um, but it turns out they were playing kind of their own hacked version of it back before, you know, hacking a version of a game was even a term, let alone like a thing that people did. Um, and I think it was just a matter of streamlining it, really. I don't think they did it as some conscious effort to make it better. They just were so casual that it became this sort of abbreviated version. Um, and it's, I think I've, I've found them sort of at the end of their interest in it. Uh, and, and so I became good friends with them, but the gaming sort of became less and less common and sort of faded, faded away. Um, and though I tried to keep some aspects of it alive, it was a lot of the time it would be me and one of them playing this kind of episodic campaign that I was trying to include them all in, but it was all in a one-on-one at a time sort of way. Um, and then that faded out. So by the end of my sophomore year, I wasn't gaming really at all. And it never struck me that I could go find other people that were doing it. And that's what I was saying before. I, right. I, I don't know what was wrong with my, my thinking at the time, but you know, the resources weren't as available as they are now. And I, I guess I just had other, other interests. And, um, and it wasn't until um, I had actually gone off to college and gone through four years of college. Um, so basically my, my junior and senior year of high school, freshman, sophomore, junior, and most of senior year in college before I met a guy in my department who played Battletech. Oh, nice. And he introduced me to my first miniatures game, which was Battletech. Um, and I was hooked on that really fast. And turns out they played some other things. And so for, for like one semester, I played a, a little bit uh, uh, more gaming um, and, and then went off to grad school. 
Um, and so um, it was Battletech that brought me back to the hobby. And when I got to grad school, um, I was wandering across campus one of the first days of the semester. And back before there were websites, there were things called like activity marts uh, in a college environment where like all the different activities on campus would come and, and put up tables and put up posters and try and recruit, you know, new students to participate. And I walked past the fencing club, which I had done a lot and I'd been on the fencing team in college. And so I was all game to do that. And as I turned away from signing up for that, I, I saw this gaming, sim, gaming and simulations club. And uh, I walked oh, wow. over and talked to the guy there. And uh, um, he said, yeah, come on down on Saturdays at 11 o'clock. And, and we, we play all kinds of games. Yeah, we play Battletech. Don't worry, there'll be Battletech players there. So um, that was sort of my entree into more, more regular gaming post, post high school and college. It was, well, I was in, in graduate school. Even after a long break like that, Jeff, um, you know, it sounds like you had relatively little difficulty jumping right back in again. And I'd be curious, what was the itch that needed to be scratched? So now, you know, being much older and, you know, retrospectively, what, what, why does it have such a gravity? Why was it so easy to bring you right back in and get you gaming again after that long break? Man, that's a great question. And, and I, I guess I have to say, I'm pretty obsessed with Battletech for a very short period there. Um, it just seems so different from, I, I, I've always been a science fiction fan first and my gaming had all been fantasy and, and, uh, right. the chance to play battles like, you know, as a miniatures game, there's that whole like sort of tactical element that's fun, but we were playing, mm -hmm. um, Warrior, I think was their role-playing game. And we were combining that with, with the actual tactical game. And, and that really grabbed me. Uh, in a way that fantasy gaming had never done. And uh, I think what really cinched it for me was, a, was, the, was that, was the, was the science fiction gaming, but more importantly, I had just moved to a new state and a new town and a new school for grad school. I didn't know anybody. Um, and so my first week at the institution, here I am with like a room full of like-minded people all playing tons of different games. Uh, and, and, uh, basically a ready-made social group to, to sort of fit in with. And I think that's kind of what, what kept me coming back for, for that first semester and, and really got me kind of hooked into the, the gaming scene there at the university. Yeah. The, the community that's built around not only miniature gaming, not only role-playing games, but, you know, again, these other types of quote unquote geek hobbies. Um, is amazing. And, and I got to tell you, Jeff, um, I, I've heard that a couple times where, you know, people say I moved to a new town and because I liked playing role playing games, I was able to find a new set of friends like overnight, like we shared that and it was an instant bond. Um, so you um, are then in grad school. Oh, yeah, I was going to add. Um, it, it was funny, too, because that first day that I went to the gaming club, uh, I didn't know 11 o'clock. So I went at 11 o'clock. Right. Here I am sitting in this big empty room of this university uh, classroom building. And it's like 11.15, 11.30. It's almost 12 o'clock. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I got the date wrong. And then one guy kind of rolls in and says, oh, no, everyone's always late. I'm like, oh, okay. And then he sits in the corner and, and doesn't really do anything. I'm like, oh, right, you want to play a game? Oh, no, I'm waiting on my group. I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, well, 
you know, I got things to do. I'm, I'm in grad school. I'm supposed to be a student now. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go do other things. And I could tell in my mind, I had made the decision that I wasn't coming back because it just felt like there wasn't really oh, anything wow. going on here. Right. So I'm walking out the door. I'm literally passing through the door when another guy comes in. He goes, Hey, where are you going? And I said, Oh, I'm, it was going to be here. I'm, I was just heading out. No, we're going to have a, we're going to have a game this afternoon. You just come play with us. Okay. And really, I had I knew no one else had nothing else to do, so I just you know turned around and, and went back in with them. And and uh, that afternoon we played uh, Daredevils. I don't know if you've ever heard of that game. Uh, oh, nice. 1930s pulp, fic, pulp um, fiction kind of um, yeah. setting. Uh, I think it's the same company and system that's used in Aftermath, which we played a lot of following that too. So um, I, I specifically blame that guy. His name is Chip. Um, still in touch with him for like looping me back in in a moment where I was just about to step out the door and, and really probably not come back to game. Uh, so all the things that have happened since I hold him yeah. personally responsible. So speaking of what happens next, um, you know, at some point, um, I imagine you get in a situation where, you know, playing is not enough. Running games isn't enough. Um, you know, adjusting at the table isn't quite enough. When did you first start getting an itch that maybe you wanted to make something and not only make something for your table, but make something for more than just your table? Well, um, I had a false start back in that senior year of college, not so much because I felt compelled to make a, make a game or any part of a game, but I was, like I said, I was on the fencing team and I, and I, Back in the, the, that was sort of the advent of simulationist gaming, right? Everyone was like, is it realistic? Mm -hmm. uh, is, it, is it how it would be in the real world? Uh, and so, of course, I was caught up in that current, but also being a fencer, I was like, I wonder if I can model this in, in a role-playing kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember spending some time trying to grok out some ways to like simulate how a, a fencing match went in a in a kind of role-playing style mechanic and i didn't get very far and i i play tested it a couple of times with some friends who were also fencers but it turns out i wasn't that interested they weren't that interested and it sort of just kind of dropped it um but after being in this club uh grad school for a while um i, I met john Tynes of pagan publishing and delta green fan yeah um and he was another member of the club and we played some games together um, and he was talking about this fanzine that he was going to start, the uh, Unspeakable Oath. And um, one of the guys that we played with, uh, Shay Reynolds, Blair Reynolds, um, who's this amazing artist, uh, had volunteered to do some work for him. And I said, well, I, I do some illustrations. And I, I had tried to be an artist at one point in my life, and I did illustrations, and I, I wasn't very good, but I had tried to art. <laughs> um, but, you know, back in, in that day, the, there weren't high standards for the kind of black and white art that went into a fanzine. <laughs> so he, he gave me a, a couple of assignments and he liked them well enough. And so I did some more art. And then um, as Pagan Publishing got some legs, did some, some um, kind of tangential writing, but at least some creating and some more art. Uh, started actually doing some art direction for them a little bit. Um, play tested a bunch of the scenarios that went in. And then probably my first real writing was John and I together uh, wrote Grace Under Pressure, which was mm. one of the scenarios that um, went into one of the earlier volumes, but then we republished it as kind of a standalone um, booklet. 
Um, and it, of the scenarios that have come out of Unspeakable Elf, it's kind of one of the better known. Is that like a multimedia, modern day Cthulhu submarine attacked by great old ones, kind of by a star spawn kind of thing, uh, deep, deep ones breaking in through the hull, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, and so that was probably my first actual, like, creating a scenario. And, and at that point, I, I felt like, well, now, now I can not only enjoy gaming, but also share it the way I like to do it with other people in a way that just running a game didn't do. But running a game, even the very best game is lightning in a bottle. And, it, and, right. and once it's over, you can talk about it, but no one cares about it except the people that were there. You know, everyone knows that, that drill when you start telling them about a campaign that you weren't part of, they just aren't interested. Um, and, and writing games, I found, like, sort of put that, bot, that lightning in, a, in a, a sustained bottle where, you know, other people could use it and get something out of it. And that was really cool. And I really liked that space. And that was sort of how, how I started working regularly with, with Pagan. So, you know, when so you, you get in kind of a creative environment, right, at, at that point, there's a lot of stuff coming out of Pagan, um, especially there in the beginning. And it was kind of Wild West um, because really, there, you know, that fanzine was very unique uh, for its time. Um, and so you, you get a taste for creating. Uh, you get a taste for writing things down, pushing it out to the public. And what I'd be interested in is because there's many aspects to it, right? So you've got the ideation at the very beginning that turns into iteration, right? So you start working on it, editing it, play testing it, so on and so forth. Then there's the pushing it out there and letting your baby, you know, go and run. And then there's what comes back, right? So hearing right. people playing and stuff like that. And that huge spectrum of creation, is there an aspect of that that either you think you're particularly drawn to or that you enjoy more or what part of that entire life cycle is something that uh, is important to you? Well, the initial creation, of course, like the original idea, um, I think is where, where I find the most creative spark and the most, most fun, I guess. Um, and then generally running, running the game when it's, when it's in a form to be run, and uh, especially at conventions. To, to people new to the game that is hugely rewarding um exciting even a lot of the time um especially when the Why response is well uh because and i think everybody that games probably has a little bit of this but when you are running a game you are presenting and creating and presenting a world even if you even if it's a, a commercial product you're creating the that, that instantiation of that world and if you hit the right notes and if you've got the right vibe and, you know, if the, if the magic pole in that moment is strong, then the table has a unique experience that will never be, uh, never come again, never, never come before, never come again. And, and it is this sort of energetic moment of creation um, that, that can't really be replicated, at least in my experience, elsewhere. You know, artists, I'm sure when they paint, feel something like it. Maybe musicians when they play music. So this is sort of my kind of, I guess, music. This is my jam session, right? Um, and, and when it works, it works so well. And it really transports you to someplace else. And that's always been what's kept me gaming was this, those moments when I'm transported to somewhere else. 
And if it's because of something I created or, or something that we right. create collectively at the table, it's that much more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it amazes me. Um, especially talking to our generation of gamers when I have them on the show and I, I do the origin story question, how quickly we can be transported back 30, 40 years to the moment when we first felt that magic that you're talking about. And we talk about it like it happened yesterday. That's the strength of the imprint it can make. For sure. So um, you leave Pagan and how much of a gap is there between um, the work you did with Pagan and Biohazard Games? Uh, about 30 seconds. <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah. The, so for those of you listening, I was taking a drink when he said that. I almost spit my drink out. <laughs> That's okay. Um, it, it's a it's funny overlap. I, as I mentioned to you before, it wasn't the most amicable of of separations, but you know it happened. And, right. Um, at the time, um, I had been working on a project for Pagan that we were calling uh, End Times, and it was going to be sort. You know, there'd been several iterations of Call of Cthulhu games that that point there was the classic call of cthulhu in the 1930s there was i think 1880s version there was cthulhu now we'd already um had already sort of the, the the seeds that would become delta green we'd already been playing delta green for a couple of years at that point um and and so there was going to be this like new sort of slick um spy version of of um call of cthulhu so, there, you know, at the time, that was the 90s, right? So there was the 1990s version. Um, what, what didn't exist at the time was a, a future version. And so we had this idea that um, the end times had come. Earth was under the thrall of the great old ones. And a Mars colony that had been established prior to the end times was now cut off from Earth and was going to be oh, the setting cool. for call of cthulhu adventures but in a near future kind of expansive sort of tech level um yeah but with the supernatural elements of so you have this cutoff colony you have this um existential threat you have no no resources coming from earth you've got a, a higher tech level that and the players are trying to survive in this world that is now not only hostile to their survival because of natural effects but hostile to their survival because Cthulhu mythos. Um, I had run, I had run um, a scenario for the crew, um, the, the first scenario of end time, um, one shot, and I felt, and it seemed like it went went extremely well. It just seemed that it was that kind of lightning in a bottle that I knew this had legs. This idea of putting characters in this particular kind of um, near future tech isolation. Um, separate colony, this existential supernatural threat. Um, really, what it, 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 in ninety? What was that? It had to be ninety three, ninety four. It had to be um, one of the few games that were kind of looking at, at, at that space at the time. Yeah. Um, and then within like a week, the, the, my separation from Pagan happened, um, and I was left with this property this all this developmental work that didn't have any place to to live there was a there was talk for a while that yeah we're going to continue with the project i'll just work on it as a freelancer and and pagan would publish it um and then uh john got the gig in seattle for with watsi and mm -hmm. it just sort of became Pagan became a back burner deal and uh delta green sort of became the focus so nothing happened with it um 
And I wasn't going to let any of that. Uh, I, I, I didn't want to leave the gaming space. I didn't want to leave the game design space. I wasn't ready for, to do that yet. And I had done all this developmental work and I thought, well, how can I reskin this into something that I really could um, develop? Because I, I love horror, but sci-fi was my, my first love. And, you know, they say in, in English class, write what you know. Um, and I had been a, a marine ecologist by collegiate training um, and loved the oceans. And, and so I started to map on very deliberately. Like it wasn't like a, a creative moment where I said, oh, I have this idea for a game. It was like, I want to create a game because I'm now I'm no longer part of Pagan. I'm, I'm on my own. And back then it wasn't like you had the Internet to really grab onto other properties and self-publish in a way that you could like make a name for yourself. You really had to kind of make a game and use that as your entree to the industry. At least that was my perspective at the time. And, and so that's where the initial idea for Blue Planet came from. I was like, okay, it's going to be about the ocean. Um, I, I'd been playing a, a video game called Subwar 2050, which was microprose. This, for the time, it was cutting-edge graphics, but it was like this vector graphic fighter subs in, a, in, in the year 2050, basically taking out different underwater facilities and doing underwater dogfights. So I played a lot of that and trying to develop this game idea based on this isolated colony, based on the, the existential threat it was facing, the lack of tech support, near future tech. You can see now where those threads are kind of coming together to create the, the blue planet setting. And then there was a moment where I went, holy shit, um, I, 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 have, I know what it is now. Um, and it, over the matter of like 24 hours, all those pieces fell into place and, and almost full cloth, almost in its entirety was the setting for the planet. So Poseidon and the blight and the isolation and the Athena project and the, the native, the Nereid aliens, all of that just kind of fell into place. Um, and, uh, I, in fact, it was so, such a sudden like toggling of a switch that, um, I just grabbed a friend and I spit it all out so that I, someone else had heard it. Um, I'm, a, I'm still, after all these years, a terrible typist. And it's much easier <laughs> for me to like run the, run the setting as a game. So I'm like just spitting it out to them. Um, and, and that, that turns out to have been a, a moment of genius because, or lucky genius, because the next day, I'm not exaggerating, the next day this guy came back to me unsolicited with the timeline. Uh, of the setting um, with much, much of which just survived straight through to the final product. Um, And and so, so we had this context to start, to start working in. And and that was where the initial, the first edition of Blue Planet came from. Um, And it was just a matter of, you know, writing up some, some pretty crude rules. Uh, I'd never really been a mechanics guy to that point. And, and I would not consider myself really mechanics guy to this point, but, um, you had some crude rules and, and the setting to, to start playing. And I still remember that very first game. Um, and, and, you know, it was all, all, the, all the start at that point. And so first edition Blue Planet was the first thing to come out of Biohazard Games? Uh, sort of. Um, okay. Partway through the process, I, and you got to remember, this is, this is a very, when, when game design and game sales were very different than they are now. Yeah. Um, pre-internet. Well, I mean, we, there were there was email, and there were chat rooms, and that kind of thing. But there was no there were no websites. Um, there was no no shopping carts. Yeah, no communities that were like ready made in a way that I 
had access to. Um, I, I was not really tech savvy, even um, even in that in those crude early days of the internet. But um, it, you know, it was, I think my first email officially from Blue Planet or for Biohazard Games was um, AOL, um, and so you know there there was that limited resource. But um, I I did know from my pagan days that, and I had some relationships with people. I had a Rolodex equivalent, and and you needed to go through. Um, printers and you needed to go through distributors and the distributors got you to the game stores. And, um, there were a couple of, um, properties that by a pagan that I had kept rights to. And one of them was this thing we called killer crosshairs, um, which was looking back is ridiculous now, but again, the simulationist ethos, um, it was one of these like plug and play systems where you use an acetate template, uh, over different, uh, types of targets to determine where specifically your attacks would hit. And there were damage, special damage tables for it. And at the time I thought it was super cool. And, 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 and I had that property. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'm going to build, I'm going to build some skills in layout. I'm going to build some skills in uh, working with the printers. I'm going to build some skills or some relationships with the distributors by, by doing this as a standalone, like little, thing so we printed a whole bunch of them i remember right. the, i still remember the day where half of them went into the dumpster uh because they you know, we sold a bunch but we didn't sell as many as we printed um and uh um i still have a little pile in the stock closet right now uh just for posterity's sake um but that was it was a good experience i learned a lot in the process but the yeah. whole time i'm working on on blue planet and uh so that was the first that was the first product from Biohazard. Gotcha. And so, you know, again, to 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 really reinforce what you've already said about it at a different time and place um, for how you can get games out. No Kickstarter exists when you try no. to get that game out. So no. was that just a matter of you scraping together pennies to pay for printing and everything? Um, how did that happen? Yeah, it was going to be. Um, and this is even really pre PDF. So I couldn't even have just put things out on PDF. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, there, I think there were, I think PDFs as a technology were existing, but they, it wasn't, it wasn't any kind of widespread access that people had. Um, and, and so the idea of just electronically publishing, it wasn't really a thing either. Um, but the, probably the single most important moment, except for when that guy dragged me back into the games club was when um, I got back from a, I'm a, I'm a school teacher, um, my day job. And I'd gotten back from a week-long field trip with my students. And there was this huge list of email waiting for me. Um, huge by standards of the time, maybe not by now, but there was probably 150 emails. And I remember highlighting like the first half of them just deleted. And I thought, oh, man, I really, that was dumb. I shouldn't do that. Um, and the very next email in the list was from a guy named Greg Benich. Never heard of him before. I opened it up and he said, hey, you've never heard of me before. Um, but I saw a post you made about uh, this thing, Blue, Blue Planet. Um, and and I, I'm interested in getting into games. I've never published a game. I've never really written for games. But and I don't know how far you are in the process, but I'd like to be involved. And oh, by the way, I have some money. I'm not oh, exaggerating. Shit. Like, that was it, right? Like, and. And he had a, 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 some, some resources that he wanted to put towards it as sort of like a fair buy-in 
to, to the game. Right. And, and the truth is he didn't realize that we were probably not even halfway through producing it because I was just doing it on the side. I didn't have the, the it was really just me. And, I, and there were, like I mentioned, the fellow Jason who had done the timeline and just a few people kind of a few thousand words here and there, but really it was me trying to keep it alive. And, and um, it wasn't until he came on board that I realized this was going to see the light of day. I'd been trying to convince myself that it would eventually wow. get done. But when he came on and he just started writing and he's a good writer, um, he's gone on to prove that in many game products and novels. And he's just, he's just an excellent writer. And the best writing in Blue Planet first edition was, was by him. So this absolutely serendipitous, out of nowhere, saw a post, got some money, um, and and uh, we were partners. And and he really, his presence on the project made it happen. And I'm pretty sure that if it if he hadn't been around, it might not have actually seen the light of day. Um, pretty confident that it wouldn't have. Um, but we worked. It was amazing how well we worked together. And this may also sound strangely serendipitous. I, I can remember we've had exactly two disagreements. Um, that even, that, and even those didn't become heated. They just had a lot of like conversations. One was about initiative. <laughs> and uh, I don't even remember what the other one was about. Um, but we would... Grappling rules. The, right, right. Something. Yeah. Towards the end of the... Towards the end of the... Of the um, production cycle we were talking on the phone probably 10 times a day um and we were trying to make a deadline to get it out in time for uh to to, um premiere it at origins in 1997 1997 origins and we had a timeline that if we didn't make um it wouldn't it wouldn't make it out um and so we were we were talking on the phone constantly and uh it was just amazing how we never disagreed on anything anytime you know, we might not see it exactly the same way, but by the end of the conversation, we were like right on, on track with each other. Um, and we just liked the same things about science fiction. We liked the same things about science fiction gaming. We wanted it to feel the same way. We wanted it to read the same way. Um, yeah, he, he would write something and I have a really heavy editing hand. Ask most of the people I work with because um, I wanted to be just a certain way. I rarely edited a word he wrote. Um, and it was just, it was just this fantastic partnership. Yeah. And a complete stranger. Yeah. Yeah. We had worked together a long time. He, he had, he, when we decided to work together, he traveled, he was living in Texas at the time and he traveled up to where I was in Missouri. Um, and we spent a long weekend together. We had like a, a huddle with all the people that had been involved and they were all just my local gaming friends. They weren't people from far away. And we, we right. played, we, I think we, I don't even think we played a game. We just all sat around eating pizza for like 48 hours, just brainstorming the crap out of what was the final structure the book was going to be and just jumping on specific ideas that needed to be decided, timeline elements and tech development things and kind of how the mechanics would work. Um, And that was it. We were off and running. Uh, And I think it was that that summer or maybe it was might have been the next summer. I think that was early in the, in, that might have been a fall visit. And then earlier the next summer, we were off on our way to press. And that itself was a, a crazy story too. But um, yeah, it was <laughs> total, total stranger. That's amazing. So guys, the Insider Insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, 
artists, writers, and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and the methods for crafting their creations. That is what we're going to continue doing with Jeff here. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk a little bit more about Blue Planet, plus a couple other games that he's been responsible for. We'll be right back. Gadzooks Gaming is one of our favorite places online to get your gaming goodies. Terrain, base inserts, miniature games like Marvel Crisis Protocol and Malifaux, jewelry, and even hand-carved wands. RPG books for Call of Cthulhu and Dungeons and Dragons, accessories and models to make your RPG session next level. They are veteran-owned and operated and help support us. So go to gadzooksgaming.com and check out all of their gaming gold. Be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. That's gadzooksgaming.com. I feel validated because it's not every day that my guests are around my age. So when you're talking about everything happening in the 90s, I was like, I was there. I know exactly what Jeff's talking about. But, you know, for for some of us that are listening, you know, again, and and I hate sounding like just like an old dude, but like understanding what publishing was like then and getting a game out that actually ended up in stores and in people's hands was tough. So you, you meet this person, you've got some financing behind it, you have this killer weekend of pizza and ideas what's next uh well it was a writing frenzy um and just pulling everything together uh and it's funny i look back on it and it doesn't feel as hard to do that part of it then as it does now um maybe i just had more energy or something why is that i I don't know uh i wish i wish it and it may be that i'm just sort of rose-colored glasses to history or something Yeah. But um, the, being a school teacher, a lot of my uh, time to do this kind of thing is during the holiday breaks. And so I, I remember the beginning of that summer leading into the, jet, the uh, Origins premiere of the game. Um, we had a, a really limited time frame that we could get the final um, files to the printer. Um, and still have the book out in time to, to have it at Origins. And, you know, Greg brought money, but not a ton. We wanted to get some of that investment back. And, and really, back then, you, you couldn't advertise. Sure. You had to advertise at the big cons. You had to advertise at the little cons. You had to have distributors that were, like, advertising for you. Um, there were ways to get information out on the Internet, but you couldn't. We had a very crude website. Um, and I don't even think initially that came like maybe a, a couple of years after, if I recall correctly. Um, and it was just, it was a matter of sort of old school um, getting the book in front of people and the idea of the book in front of people. So we really wanted to make the deadline. And we had set that for ourselves right. and, it, and it was good. It was motivation. Um, but we had a layout artist who had, had agreed to do the work. And we'd paid in advance to, and then he moved away. He was local to where I lived in Missouri. Then he moved away to Chicago. And um, back then, sending files back and forth was possible, but really, really 
slow. And I remember um, we're down to like three weeks, I think we had to finish the book, get it laid out and get it to to press uh, to make it to origins. Well, maybe a little longer than that. It might have been, might have been five weeks. Um, and I was standing over the printer watching page one of his chapter, like he'd laid out a chapter, slowly print. And I'm like just panicking because there is no way that the files are going to come back fast enough for us to look at them, make proofs, send them back to the layout guy. And I'm like, I have to go to Chicago. So I call Greg. No shit. Yeah, I call Greg. Greg. Um, Turns out has an old college roommate, lives in Chicago. Greg flies up to St. Louis. I drive to St. Louis, pick him up. We drive to Chicago, crash at his friend's house for a full week. After work every day, this guy who we paid the advance to, he was, I got to give a shout out to him. He was totally game because we helped him out with that advance at a time he really needed it. And he wanted to, wanted to see us through to the end. So he stayed late at work every day and he worked at this fancy um, publishing house that had all this, you know, fancy printer at the time, fancy printers. Everyone's got one on their desktop now, but he had all this hardware and software that was just for us cutting edge. And he stayed, we bought him dinner every night. He stayed late, really late, like till midnight for, for like a week straight. Um, and then the final weekend um, where he's printed everything out and we're making corrections to the files. I'm still writing some of the text at this point. Greg's still writing some of the text oh during the God. day while he's at work. We're at his, at his room, my, we're at Greg's roommate's house, um, writing text during the day. We bring that over to him in the evenings, feed him dinner, put all the text into the layout. He's making layout corrections. He prints the whole thing. Um, we do one pass of layout corrections with this guy. Um, and then that's it. He just doesn't have time anymore. And he's got to get on this other project. So. Yeah. And we've got to get it to press. We have one day to get it to the printers before they won't guarantee that it's done in time for origins. Turns out, luckily, I have a, a, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle with cousins who live in the town where the printer is in Minnesota. So we finished printing out this oh proof copy God. at like <laughs> four o'clock in the afternoon. We've been up all night. I'm exhausted. I barely make it back to the friend's house. I crashed for like five hours of sleeping. Greg can't wake me up. Finally, I wake up. We get in the car. We drive to central Minnesota. It's like another six or eight hours of driving. My God. Um, crash at my aunt's house. The next day, we're at the printers putting the files into their system and making corrections to the files. Because all night as I drove, Greg had a pen oh light making corrections, proofing the, the document. Um, just making like... That was, our, that was the entirety of our editing and proofing, was his sitting by pen light driving Incredible. across um, three states. So we end up um, working with the printer for a couple of days, making these little corrections as they set the files up in the printer, and then we're done. Like, there's nothing else we can do. It's in their system. It's in their queue. They're ready to print. We yeah. can't make any changes. I remember we discovered halfway across... Wisconsin, that one of the, we didn't have a lot of art, but there were like 10 full page image, images. We found that one of them hadn't come through in the file. So I had to have my girlfriend at the time FedEx, which I'd never FedEx anything in my life back then. It was expensive. Uh, the, the original piece of art to the printer 
where we then reshot it and put it because you oh had to my. scan it. You had to scan it with a like with photographs. Yeah. So we had to like, re retake the picture, put it into the the image using the just the sympathy and the equipment of these really kind printers. Shout shout out to Bang Printing. They have since gone on to print tons of game books for lots of different companies, and they're still doing it. Um, but anyway, at that point, we're done. Um, Greg and I chill at my aunt's and uncle's for a while. What's that feel like when you're done, Jeff? Uh, it's, it, when you can't touch it yeah, anymore. It's, it's funny because there was about 48 hours in that last frenetic work where I remember telling myself, if I could snap my fingers and not have invested any of this money or time in this project and just go back to nothing, I would have done it in an instant. Uh, because it was just yeah. so, so much, so, so exhausted, so overwhelming. And I was so worried that we weren't going to get back any of this. But 14 days later, um, I'm driving back to Minnesota because we're, we're never going to ship it there in time, right? I'm driving back to Minnesota. I think I went a couple of days early. I'm going to hang out with my aunt and uncle. We went fishing, met family. It was a little family reunion. Um, I drove to the, the printer. I filled as, I had an SUV. I filled as much of the empty space in the SUV as I could with boxes of books. Um, I didn't even look at it at this point. They handed me one copy. I'm like, thanks. I throw them on the back of the car because I don't, I've only got like 12 hours to drive to uh, um, Columbus. And so I drive all night long, end up um, crashing on the side, not, not literally crashing, like sleeping on the side of the road for several hours, pull into, um, yeah. pull into uh, Columbus um, with very little time to spare. We're already setting up the table at this point. Um, and then books are being laid out and that's it. Like, so there wasn't really like any time for it even to cool off from the presses before it was being sold at, at origin. What is stunning to me about this story, Jeff, and I know you already know this, but just hearing this for the first time, I mean, you had so many points of potential failure. It, it, it's incredible. Yeah. It's absolutely incredible. And, and I gotta be honest when you said to me, you know, we prepaid the guy, the layout guy, and then he moved to Chicago. I had already figured, oh, man, this guy, he's going to get screwed by this guy. And then to hear it was just the opposite. It's an amazing story. Yeah, well, I'll be specific. We paid him half. So we still had half. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so there was that hook. But, you know, he was a good guy. And, and, he, mm -hmm. and he did right by us. He did us a solid for sure. I mean, we laid out the book in probably about four days. Uh, it's black and white. And, you know, it, but and it was unsophisticated even for the time. But it. But it, you know, yeah. it looked good for the time, and and anyway, it was yeah, lots of points of failure. The the deadline was somewhat arbitrary, but in our heads, it had become the deadline. Like if we didn't get it right. by that origins, we were going to fail. Um, and uh, the reception was amazing. Um, granted, back then there were like maybe four or six new role playing games that would that would premiere at Origins or even at Gen Con. Um, there were a few enough that you knew what they were. And in the morning of walking around the, the, the much smaller dealer's room, uh, maybe a couple hundred tables, you could see them all. Um, and, and, you know, you buy the ones you're interested in and it didn't break the bank because, you know, there just weren't now, you can't even keep track. But um, that yeah. was the environment it was born in. Uh, and it was unique at the time. Um, and so it got, I think, garnered more attention than might otherwise have. It wasn't fantasy. Um, it was, it was Jeroen-esque, um, Skyrealms of Jeroen. I don't know if you're familiar with that, that book, but it was Jeroen-esque. In fact, that was one of my sort of touchstones 
for creating right. a setting that was deep and unique. Um, and I think that's one of the things that has allowed Blue Planet to sort of continue to exist in the space was that it was deep and unique and it carried forward this idea, this sort of like reputation with it um, as we went into the second edition and now the third edition. But it was well received and, and enough so that we you know, sold pretty quickly through the um, books that we brought to Origins for sure and then went to Gen Con that year and, and sold a bunch more and put it into distribution. And we ended up having to do a second print run uh, on our own, which, you know, wow. it's kind of unheard of for, for first time designers and first time games and, and certainly niche titles like that. Um, but then it was in that second cycle, we put out, I think, two supplements, uh, the Archipelago book and the Access Denied game screen thing. But it was at that time that Fantasy Flight sort of got involved and we moved on to second edition. You could probably have a, a successful game at that time would sell about a thousand copies, and and we printed two thousand and did a second printing. So you know we were unbelievable. We were doing pretty well on a relative scale. You know we still still hadn't recovered yeah. all of our money. Still hadn't recovered. You know we hadn't made a, a profit. If you certainly if you look at our time, but we had we had paid for the process of putting the book out. Um, which you know was kind of all I was looking for at the time was a self-sustaining hobby press. Um, in fact, I remember that being a term that went around for a long time, the hobby press. Um, now it's now it's indie press, right? But it was hobby press right. for a while. Yeah, um, yeah. So, what was it like for you? Um, you know, first at the I'm, I can't imagine the experience at the booth after all of that just adrenaline stress that you had been through i mean it sounds like the biggest cost behind first edition blue planet was gas money for crying out loud um <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> it um so you're at the booth and, and work in a booth at, at at oranges is exhausting but now you know it's finally out there right and i would be curious what was what was it like when it came back so people started talking about it. People start reviewing it. And, you know, what was what was that like for you? Well, just having it done was kind of exhilarating. It was a huge relief. Having people buy it, that surprised me, honestly. Right. Um, and and uh, that was pretty gratifying. Um, there was, and I, I'm forgetting the timeline a little bit, but when I realized that this was something more than just like this book that we did and that was over Ken Height before he was Ken Height or maybe as he was beginning to come become Ken Height uh, was writing reviews for a magazine and I can't remember which one it was I still have the review I could look it up but he wrote a review of it um we'd given him a review copy and I remember thinking like should we give out review copies is that a thing people do I don't know um but my but greg was like yeah and and i think he knew of ken at that point and and ken was very unassuming he's like oh, i was reviews i was curious you did review come I'm like okay and i watched this book go away for free i'm like oh we just can't read free books. what uh but his I review was <laughs> yeah his review was so um good and wow. generous and complimentary um not so much of the rules which was fair because um, I had written those and they weren't very good. But um, Greg had tried to salvage them, but he didn't have much time, didn't give him much time to salvage them. Uh, but he made some substantive improvements to them. 
but it was mostly about the setting and this idea that the game was something different in the in the marketplace. And I thought, and that when I saw that, I'm like, other people are going to like this. Like it really dawned on me, like other people will actually like this. And and so by the time we got to Gen Con, and I think the review may have been in between Origins and Gen Con, though that seems a little odd because the magazine cycle, I imagine, was probably a little longer than that. But anyway, um, sure, we had been nominated for an Origins Award that year because it had come out in that cycle. And that kind of blew me away. And the reviews started coming out and people seemed to like it. And people were coming up to us at Gen Con saying, hey, I heard about Blue Planet. Um, hey, I'd love to trade you for the." And I was heard about the other games. And here I am trading, like, you want my game for your game? That's cool. These cost us, like, I think the, I think the black and white first edition cost us, like, $4.90 to print. Uh, and we were selling them for, like, 18 bucks, I think. And to me, I'm like, their book was $25. I, that's a deal. Right. Um, right. So I'm slinging books and Greg is slinging books and people are excited. And we're talking with all these designers at, you know, big bar on two. And then at, uh, after hours at Gen Con. And, um, and so we're, you know, we're becoming part of this game industry that we had only kind of tangentially been involved in before. Um, and, and so it just was super gratifying to, to see that all that work was counting for something to somebody. Uh, and it was just, it was just fun. Um, the stress was gone because, you know, we, we weren't going to be in the hole anyway. Now it was never going to be huge. profitable. RPGs in general for most situations aren't profitable, but it was, it was not a hole. Um, and it was paying for itself and it was just fun. It was just super fun. Yeah. I, run, I was running lots of games. Uh, I spent my whole days on, running games at the, at the cons, and introducing people to the, the setting. Uh, it was great. Um, and then, you know, Fantasy Flight got involved with them, and, and, it, and it just kind of grew from there. You know, you talk about you running a lot of the games, and what I'm always interested in is how much exposure did you have watching other people play and run the game? Did you have a lot of opportunity to see how other people that you hadn't taught, that you hadn't demonstrated to, um, how they took what you wrote down and brought it to the table? Almost none initially. Um, first of all, I've, I've ever, I've never heard, I've, I've played very little blue planet, which kills me because the whole, <laughs> the whole production cycle for was for, for me was run, write the game that you want to play. And this was the game that I wanted to play. Right. Um, but I would have friends volunteer. And then after like a session, they would, they would sort of abandon it. And I came to learn that like they felt intimidated because there was so much lore, I guess oh. if you want to call it to, to feel like they knew that they, they didn't feel like they could own it enough with me on, at the table to really um, run the game that comfortably, even people who had worked on it, um, which was kind of a bummer for me because I didn't care what they did with it. I just wanted to play it. Um, and I, and I did, I, I was self-aware enough to not say, Oh, you you got that wrong. Oh, you should be doing it this way. And I purposefully like shut up and let them run their game. Yep. Um, so I didn't get to see much in person. And back then it wasn't like you could go to a website and, and find people that were going to run your game for you at Gen Con, right? You had to kind of do it all. Um, yep. it wasn't until I started reading a sort of after action reports, such as they were up or reviews where someone had run the game for themselves on things like RPG.net, um, where I started to get an inkling of what, how games went 
for for other people. Um, my favorite version of that was um, a a reviewer was writing a review, and he was, you know, how they like to have their cutesy little intros. He was at a game store listening to some some tweeners in the back gaming space turning Blue Planet into a John Woo movie. Um, and I thought that was sort of the best description of what your game can become that I that I'd ever heard. Um, so it was only in those kind of only kind of those written forms that I'd actually ever got to, to hear about it. Um, there are a couple of people who've done podcasts of it since, but just one shots. Um, and 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 so I've I've listened to those, um, and that was that was fun. It's it's a hard game to run because people are intimidated by the depth of, of the lore and feel like either they don't care and just jump in, which is great. Um, or they care too much and they feel kind of paralyzed by, by that. In fact, that's was sort of a touchstone or a, a, a uh, touchstone. What's the right word? A guiding principle of the new edition was design goal. Yeah. Of trying to get into that, that lore in, a, in a, an easier way. So let's talk about when Fantasy Flight comes comes on board. So when when does that uh, first contact happen? I think we are at might have been Origins again. It might have been our second year, maybe our third year, but I think it was our second year. And they have a booth coincidentally across from us, um, across the aisle, and so we're just like you know literally just chatting back and forth, with staring their, at each other. Our, yeah, we're just talking about stuff and. They had just put out Disc Wars. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. that hit big. It was very popular uh, as a, yeah. like a, a faux miniatures game. And I loved it. I, I'd still play it now if other people were interested. Um, in fact, I traded them to Blue Planet for some Disc Wars. <laughs> and uh, they, they didn't have a role-playing game at the time. But they um, wanted one. Because they they just wanted a role playing right. game in their studio, and they had all this discourse money, well, all this discourse money at the time. It was a lot of money, right? They actually had some full time employees right. and were doing some cool stuff. And I think that was also <laughs> around the time that Twilight uh, Twilight Imperium was becoming a thing, um, and and so they yeah. were they were they were not the game studio that they would become, but that was the first inklings of it was Discord, Twilight Imperium, mm-hmm. and. Um, so through the course of, of that con, we had a meeting with Christian and he's like, look, we'd like to license Blue Planet from you. And we said, okay, it sounds great. Let's, then we kind of hashed out some general details. And then he said, after the con, we'll send you a contract and you can work through that. After the con, got home and he said, here's the contract. And oh, by the way, to really do this, we want you to come work for Fantasy Flight. They, they wanted me to come and, and be the, the line developer and be a full-time employee at Fantasy Flight. Yeah. Um, and this was back when, like, each new hire was responsible for answering the phones. And each, right? Like, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a very large organization yet working out in the warehouse. I, yeah. I, was, I was a teacher, and I, and I didn't want to give that up. I was still strongly invested yeah. in my career as a teacher. And Greg was actually between jobs. He was between grad school and, and a job that he cared about. Um, and, and so wasn't working at the time. And I said, well, what if Greg came instead? 
And they're like, fine. That, you know, that, well, they said, as long as he knows the setting. And I'm like, you don't understand. He's, right. he's clearly responsible for much of what's good enough. And Greg's like, hey, that sounds like fun. So he ended up working for them. Um, and part of it, part of the contract was that we produce a second edition um, because they wanted something to sell. They didn't want to just like, hey, now we're distributing the planet. They wanted something. It's, it's two years old at this point, two and a half years old. And they wanted to sell something. They wanted to advance the timeline. And the timeline had been written specifically, at least from our perspective, to kind of create sort of the, the most tension-filled, hottest moment in, in the history of, of, the, of the setting to provide all this scope and motivation and inspiration for, for people to play the game. So we didn't want to tweak that. So we said, the game rules are kind of not so great. What if we did a new rule set? And they're like, fine, that'd be great. So Greg wrote the synergy system. Um, wow. And that was, that was second edition. It was, everything was exactly the same except for the mechanics. And I think we dropped a couple of setting things that we didn't like so much anymore out of it. And uh, we made two books out of it. So there was like, I think a little bit of, I had written some newsletter stuff and that found its way in and some of the stuff from, oh, oh, that's right. Our, the Archipelago stuff, that book got incorporated into the two volume set. So all of our first edition material got incorporated into the two volume set. Nice. Uh, and then they went on to produce a line of like, I don't know, it's eight or 10 books before they sort of sunset the, the line and, and, and let the license expire. And then it all came back to us. So all that stuff that had been written in the intervening years, and I had done a bunch of that writing. Greg had done a bunch of that writing. A bunch of freelancers had done some of that writing. So there was a lot of material yeah. that kind of came back to us from the, from the license sunset. Was it hard, Jeff, to have people that wasn't you and Greg writing Blue Planet material? Or was that wonderful? Uh, sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't. Uh, Archipelago was our first experience with that in, in, in any grand kind of great quantity. Like I said, in the first edition of Blue Planet, there were some people who wrote some, some sections. My friend wrote the timeline. Another person wrote uh, some bit on the, on the original colonists. And, but that was small enough quantities that it was easy to incorporate. Um, there were a couple of people that got, got it and they wrote really well and didn't have to have much editing. Yep. There, was, there was a lot of editing that went into um, Archipelago. Um, by that time, by the, by the time we got into the second edition material, Greg was responsible for all that, um, which was great. Uh, because that was his full-time job. Um, and so whatever writing I had to do, I just did the writing and passed it on. And then he took care of the editing. Um, and by that time, I was kind of burned out. Not on Blue Planet per se, no. but just on the like, grind of a yep. full-time day job. The and process. Then, yeah. And, uh, you know, it cost me a couple of relationships. And I just I wanted to kind of have more of a life. And so I would kind of pulled back. And for several years in there, I didn't have much to do with Blue Planet at all. In fact, I didn't have much to do with several of the supplements. Um, I think I came back for um, uh, the writing of Natural Selection, which was a creature book, because that was sort of my shtick as a biologist and a biology teacher. What um, brought so you back? A lot of that. Um, I think wanting to write that book uh, just because I liked, I liked the creatures and, and and it, and it was just the side, it was just the writing, right? I passed it on to Fantasy Flight. I didn't have to worry about any of the rest of the stuff that went into that book. Greg took care of all that. Um, and then um, the last book they did, which 
in my opinion, still stands as one of the best Blue Planet books ever uh, of any edition was Ancient Echoes, which was the cetacean um, sort of world and, and, and character supplement expansion for the setting where the, you, know, you played through Dolphin and, and Killamell characters. And the reason I got involved in that directly was my girlfriend at the time, who would eventually become my wife, was um, a creative writer, never gained before in her life. Wanted, she was looking for a summer gig to supplement. She was a, a school teacher as well. Um, and she wanted a summer gig. And, and she uh, offered to write it. And so I just brainstormed. Basically, she and I every day would brainstorm outline and content. And she would write that. And the next day, we would brainstorm and content. And she would write that. And then I would edit it, I would edit it, and then it would go to Greg, and basically it just got printed word for word. Um, and it's, Isn't it's, just a, it's an interesting book because it's just so different than any other kind of role-playing book. You know, like you're playing characters that aren't human, and they're not just aliens, which are humans in alien suits. They're, they're actually like these different kinds of characters. And it was just a, it's just a, still a, a fun and fascinating book to read. Much of it's been incorporated into new editions, so. Um, I'm, I'm glad that survived. I'm glad that she got to work on it. It was, it, was, it was an interesting process. It was fun to work together. And well, and to fall in love. Look at you guys. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so, Jeff, how did how did second edition land? Um, so, you know, it is not just you anymore. It's not self published. I would assume there's probably a little bit more of a, an upgrade in production value, and you know, you sounded like the rules got a little bit more attention. What was the reception? Um, so yes, production values in that it was uh, hardcover. That um, the covers were cool. The art, interior art was a lot of it was terrible. Um, it was oh no. Even, even even the people involved afterwards were like, yeah, it was terrible. But we just had to get it to press because now you're working on a, a bigger company's timeline, and you've got like yeah, all you they have they have to meet certain deadlines so that they can meet payroll and printer costs and all yep. that stuff, right? So thank God I wasn't involved in any of that. And, and right. um, in the end, I got to see proofs, but not at the point where I could make major edits. And so it was sort of out of my mm-hmm. hands and certainly couldn't, didn't have time or money for more art or new art. Um, the rules were much stronger. The reception of the new rules was much better. Um, but you know, at that point, Fantasy Flight's off and running and a couple of books coming out every year and they've got all these other lines starting up. and the D20 market blows up with the open gaming license at the same time right and they take full advantage mm-hmm. of that so now blue planet is just one of many role-playing lines that they're running a fantasy fight um which i don't think it necessarily hurt us because it's just a different game people that are looking for blue planet aren't looking for, for d20 books but i'm sure that it got lost in the noise some a little bit yeah sure um and, and also, they just didn't have the resources to put in it. But it you know, ran on for another, I don't know, three or four years, maybe. It was the early 2000s when it sunset with them. And Greg was doing other projects with them and running the, role, the whole role-playing division and then uh, doing a lot of other game design management. Uh, needed that for quite a while. Um, he was there probably 10 years, I guess. Wow, no kidding. Yeah, that's actually how Midnight came about. Oh, so I do. I do want to take a moment and talk about Midnight. So, it's, tell me how how does Midnight come to life? So, um, I didn't even know it existed. It was going to be a thing. And I'm at Gen Con 
more more to go to Gen Con because I, I wasn't working the booth. The booth was Fantasy Flight's booth at this point. Sure. I mean, they they were happy to have me sell, there selling books, but they didn't also didn't care if I was there or not. Um, and uh, I was just there with friends to play games and I'm hanging out with Greg. So I didn't get to see him as much. And uh, we're at a bar, literally at a bar, like the, the bar part of a bar, just the two of us. Um, and he's like, hey, there's this product, this project I'm working on, calling it Midnight. And it's basically, what if Sauron won? It's 100 years later. Um, I'm like, whoa, I'm not really a fantasy guy, but that got my attention. I'm like, that sounds cool. Sure. Um, and he said, and, and coincidentally, the school I had been working at had closed just a month earlier. Um, for good, um, right after graduation. Oh wow! As a surprise to the entire faculty, so we didn't have time to find new teaching gigs. If anyone that's familiar with how teaching cycles work, you can't find a job after like March at any place that's reputable, right? Um, so I had a whole year of of having to wait for the hiring cycle before I could find another teaching gig, and so um, I was just piecing things together to pay the rent and. Greg said, do you want to work on it? And I said, wow, I don't know. That's, that's a lot to write on a, on a schedule that I'd never written on a, on a per word fixed schedule uh, before. And I said, well, let me give me a try. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll go home. Like I, I, I said, no, I can't do this. And then he kept pushing. And I said, okay, fine. I'll go home. Give me, give me a week. If I can write 10,000 words in a week and you guys pay me at that rate, um, I can pay my rent and my, my, my fixed bills. And, and I'll, I'll do it, but I have to see if I can do 10,000 words in a week. So that meant 2000 words a day. And that meant 2000 publishable words a day. And my writing process is, I think, pretty different than most people's. Most people write way faster than I do. I am terribly slow, but they write like 6,000 words. They write like, what makes you slow? I don't know. Um, I, I, I can't type fast. I've never been able to type fast. I still okay. type. I delete half of what I write because I, I type slowly and because I don't like it. And I delete it in real time. Everyone else I've taught, many other people I've talked to, they'll God. write like 6,000 words to get 2,000 words. I'll write, I don't know how many words I write because I delete as I go. But by the end of the day, I have 2,000 words that usually end up in the published book without any change to them. I mean, they'll proofread them because I can't spell to save my life. But um, now that I have, you know, back then, this is, this is how long ago that was. Spellcheck didn't work that well. Now, now it saves me, and I and I turn in two thousand words, and those two thousand words pretty much go into publication. So I, I found that I could write two thousand words a day in about somewhere between five and eight hours. And so I, I got into this rhythm of like, I'll write, uh, I'll write two thousand words today. I'll write two thousand words tomorrow. I'll take the weekend off and I'll do it again. And that's how I wrote Midnight. I took his prompts. I took his his uh, what he wanted. He had a, a two page pamphlet that they were distributing it at Gen Con and as an advertisement. And, I, and that's what I had. And I took that and I turned it into an outline and I turned it into midnight and I just wrote it like a machine. Like, like that was my job for probably three months, maybe. Um, Will Heinmark wrote um, sort of the, the rules part of the book. I wrote the setting part of the book. Um, there really wasn't that much collaboration between the two because it just didn't, the way D&D works, it didn't really require it. Yep. Um, I, I would send my 2,000 words to Greg. He would say, thank you very much. 
the one concession I got was rather than the standard at the time was pay on publication, but because I needed the money now, since I, my school had closed, Greg was able to arrange for me to get paid as I turned in the words. Got it. So I'd turn in my, my, you know, count every week and then they'd send me a check and I was able to make ends meet till I was able to gig. That's how my contribution to, to Midnight happens. Um, I wrote one, I wrote the, the first supplement, which was a campaign book, which was the campaign I used to generate the ideas I used in the writing of the source book, right. of the world book. Um, and so that was all happening at the same time. I would, I would run a game for my friends and I'm like, oh, that worked. So I included it in the setting. <laughs> run, run next week's game. Oh, that worked. I'd include that in the setting. What was different um, about writing and something that was not yours, right? Now, I'm sure in some ways it became yours, obviously, but walking into it, this wasn't a cool idea that you had like you did for Blue Planet. This was kind of, you know, at least the, the, the bones of it was handed to you. Is that harder, easier? Is there something better or worse about it? It was easier in that I wasn't as emotionally invested in it. And it wasn't costing me anything. Right. In fact, it was actually making me money. Right. Um, not a lot, but it was, it was keeping me fed. Um, and I mean, I, I guess there was the element of reputation. I didn't want it to be bad. I wanted it to be good. And I, and I, I worked very hard on it. I don't want to downplay it. Like I thought very hard about it. I, I, um, I, I worked really hard on it, but, uh, I, I, I wasn't worried about becoming a success because what I needed out of it, I was getting, I was getting paid. Um, and it was a work for hire job. And I knew that once it left my hands, it was, I wasn't going to have any control over it anyway. So I just never got that kind of investment. Got it. So it was, it was, it was, it was a little, it was liberating. Yeah. It was liberating, I guess, in a way, because I, I just could write it and move on. Going back to second edition blue planet. What did you hear? I mean, we talked about the, you know, the great re re uh, review from Ken and in first edition. What did you hear about second edition that surprised you? Was there, I mean, you knew the rules were better. So people saying the rules are better doesn't surprise you. You made some adjustments, um, you know, to the lore. Uh, so feedback on that probably doesn't surprise you. Was there anything that shocked you, either good or bad? That that's sales. What's that? Sales figures. Oh, really? Sales figures shocked me. Yeah. Um, again, it's all relative, sure. right? But I think. Uh, Greg probably has better numbers than I do, but if we include first edition, I think by the time the game was considered out of print, we probably sold 7,000 copies, 6,000, 7,000 copies, which doesn't sound like much unless you know how, how role-playing games work. You sell a thousand copies of a role-playing game and it's, it's a big seller. And so granted, you know, Fantasy Flight had deeper reach, our timing was good because there just wasn't much competing with it. It was just just hit right before the D20 glut. So there was some space for it to get known. Um, there were some good reviews. We are up for the Origins Award. Like there were reasons why it was maybe easier to, to find or for people to stumble onto. Um, conventions, you could still like make us make things known at conventions, right? Um, in a way that you just get lost in the noise now. That, that's probably the thing that surprised me the most. But like I was said, at this point, I was backing out of it, right? Right. I, I was, I was m moving on to different things in my life, and I had not anticipated going back into game design at all. Um, I was kind of done. Um, I, I, had, I was actually on my way to the Peace Corps, of all things. No kidding. 
when I met my, when I met my eventually to be wife, um, that's why I didn't go to the Peace Corps and, 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 uh, and kind of how she ended up writing on that, on that last book. But I was, you know, I was done with game design, just not, a, not on yeah. a choice. I had just kind of felt like I had done it and was moving yep. on to other things in my life. That was so, sort of at the end. And even after that book, it was probably another 10 years, 15 years before I started thinking about Upwind. And I, I hadn't stopped gaming. I was still gaming in that time, but I wasn't really designing anything or, or trying to design anything. I was running lots of games. I was right. mostly always a game master. Not always a game master, but mostly a game master. But it was, I had no designs on any for, to the publication. Let's do this, Jeff, because I want to talk about Upwind and I really want to spend a lot of time on third edition. So let's take another quick break and we get back. Let's talk about um, the boomerang back. Uh, so almost a decade break. Uh, you come back to it and uh, we've got Upwind. And of course, everybody's anxious to see this third edition. So we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You like science fiction, right? You love playing games, maybe even role-playing games. But what if you can't get your friends together for a game night? If you love games like Mothership or Orbital Blues, check out Dead Belt, a card-based space western solo strategy RPG about skillful and desperate scavengers picking over the remains of junked starships in hopes of a juicy payday. In it, you deal with lurking dangers, push your luck, and walk away with enough cred to keep on flying. Of course, you might get eaten by lurking aliens, or run afoul of rival scavengers, or face the murderous ghosts of long-dead spacers. <laughs> no one said life in the dead belt was going to be easy. For more information on this and all of Sean and Abby Drake's games, swing over to acoupleofdrakes.com. The link's in the show notes. So one of the things that uh, before we started recording and before we actually, you know, met today to record, one of the things that I found out that Jeff and I have in, in common is that we took a break. Um, you know, he took a break from designing games and everybody who listens to this is tired of hearing it, but I took a break from playing the games. Um, I guess what I want, and this is almost similar to what we talked about back in college. What was the gravity that brought you back from a design perspective? Was it the return of the rights or... What made third edition become something that you thought about? Um, well, it, that was the upwind process. Or was it upwind that brought yeah, you back? it was upwind that brought me back. Um, I don't know how much of the story you want. You can edit out whatever <laughs> might seem like too much. <laughs> but I'm here for it, Jeff. Go. <laughs> um, I, I have a really good group of gaming friends from my time in Missouri who um, we started 
having what we call the all-star gaming retreat. And this was a, a four-day weekend. We'd rent a cabin out in the woods and we would run role-playing games. We'd all like try to bring our A game, right? We'd all, each of us would propose a game. We'd make some pre-gens for it. We'd have props and sometimes weird like soundtracks and strange, um, even meals that were like associated with it. Like really try and make it this like gaming event, right? And we did the first we did the first one and it was really fun. So we did the second one. Two weeks ago, we did our 21st. Isn't that cool? So we've had, you know, except for the two COVID years where we didn't get together, we have been meeting every year. Um, and this is required, you know, they all still live in the same area, but I've been flying back from all the different places I've been flying back from Hawaii, I've been flying back from here in Washington to attend this thing. And it's because it's just become such a, a tradition. Yeah. But at some point we started theming them. Like interesting. One year, one year it was like, okay, they're all going to be games set in a cabin in the woods. And one year they're going to be all this particular system. And then another year we said, how about we all just create our own unique setting? Just grab a generic rule system and then run a game. And that was where Upwind came from. And I just really? came up with this idea. I mean, been, it had come from some game thoughts. I think, because even if you're not designing games for publication, you're still, your head's still works in that space right so i came up with this uh, upwind idea and the collision of some some weird things and for this themed weekend i i put together a one shot of it and after it was over they all looked at me and said shit you're gonna have to publish this one too right because no these guys, of these guys had already been like part of the planet um and i and i sort of started thinking well okay maybe now in parallel to that i had been toying around with a with a rule set design that I, that I um, was really meant to assuage my terrible dice luck. Um, it was a game system that used playing cards and, and you're bidding points. And, and it was completely independent of Upwind. In fact, I, first time I play tested, it was using the Blue Planet setting just because I needed a setting to play yeah. test it. But when I, when I started to see some ways that the two could be married together in really kind of like obvious ways, um, then the, put those mechanics on the upwind. So it, at the moment that I have upwind and then, and these mechanics starting to go together, I, I had a whole game, but I still wasn't interested in publishing it. Right. And then I ran it for some friends here. Local. this is probably a decade after I'd come up with basic core ideas. Wow. I'd run it for some friends here. And, and one of them had been involved in Kickstarter. He was talking about Kickstarter. I'm like, huh, this Kickstarter thing sounds interesting. Yeah. And so I started looking into it and, that's when I started like the falling down the rabbit hole of like, Oh my God, small house publishing has utterly changed since I was last involved in it. And I'm not going to say it's easier. It's just like much more at your fingertips. It's not easier. It's just like all the resources to do a beautiful job are much more at your fingertips than they used to be. Yep. The guy who introduced me to Kickstarter is also a professional illustrator and, and his style was perfect for upwind. And so that piece fell into place. And I thought, well, you know, if these things can kickstart, well, maybe I can kickstart this. And then, okay. So I, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll just write it. And if I can get it written over this summer, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and try kickstart it. Yep. So I, I wrote it and it came together and, and um, got him lined up to do the art. I got him to do some sample stuff. And I put the Kickstarter together and 
I'm, I'm not making this up. Um, the week before Gen Con, where I'm going to sort of pitch Upwind for the first time in preparation for the Kickstarter, um, a friend of mine who's online friends, you know, social media friends with um, Stuart Wick, of, uh, uh, um, who has since passed away, unfortunately, but one of the founders of White Wolf and writers of Mage and all that, um, said that he was looking, Stuart Wick was looking for a bunch of small titles to kind of bring into a new printing house um, that he called Nocturnal Media that he wanted to start um, promoting. Yeah. And so I sent him an email and I'm, I'm literally halfway, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm traveling to Gen Con when I have a conference call with him. And he's like, yeah, this sounds good. I want, it. I want Upwind to be part of this new thing. I'll send you a contract after you get back from Gen Con and we can talk about the details. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm back in this publishing business again, but this is cool because that doesn't mean I have to do any of it. And he's got such broad reach. Right. It's going to do great. Um, yeah, before we jump into there, I, I, so you, you, we now have more than one instance where someone is exposed to the concept of upwind and says this I want to be a part of this. This needs to be out there. Looking back on it, what was it? What is it about Upwind that made well, people immediately say, this needs to be something? I don't know that that's what, what made Stuart say it, because later on I came to realize, or came to find, and he was very honest with me. He, he liked Upwind, but I don't, think he, I don't think it grabbed him. What he really wanted was he was in line to do a second edition of Midnight. He'd already mm. been in negotiations with fantasy flight to get the license for it um and because i'd been the primary author on it he wanted that he also apparently wanted to do a, a new edition of the planet interesting um and, and i didn't really know that until um after he passed away i knew about midnight wow. so you mentioned that but um so i you know I, I work out the deal with him and i'm working along with the kickstarter goes and you know for a game that from somebody that basically no one's heard of because nobody that's not already owns it has heard of Blue Planet anymore. The newer generation certainly didn't. It did okay. You know, we, we um, I think we made 35K and had like 400 backers. Um, for a first outing in Kickstarter, that felt pretty good. Sure. And then unfortunately um, for, for his family and the industry and all the, the authors, he's brought a bunch of other um, designers on board. Um, Stuart passed away unexpectedly, and uh, it was tragic and, and sad and, and really blow to the industry. Um, and and I didn't know for a while, probably several months, what really was going to happen with with Upwind. In fact, the money had gone to his studio, so I never even saw the money, so that I didn't have to worry about taxes or anything. But you know, right. the backers don't care. They they don't know that right. I don't have the money, right? Uh, they were, however, when I sent out the update describing what had happened, incredibly sympathetic and supportive. Um, and they said, don't worry about it. If it comes to life, it doesn't. If it doesn't come to life, no big deal. To my um, great relief and luck, his brother stepped in, who also, uh, Steve, who knows the gaming industry, was part of White Wolf, runs um, One Bookshelf and, and Drive Through RPG. That's their baby, right? He salvaged all those projects, the ones that were far enough along that, you know, were essentially ready to go. 
Upland was one of them. But Stewart had hired a full-time assistant, uh, a guy by the name of Alan Barr, who is Gallant Night Games. Um, would probably be a great interview if you haven't already interviewed him. Um, he's done tons of game. He's done tons of game design. Um, probably most well known for the Schlock Mercenary role playing game. Mm-hmm. He's done a bunch of stuff for the tiny oh and tiny dungeons uh, and then the whole line of tiny dungeons expansions. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, he had been assistant. And he was the one that shepherded for Steve basically all these projects to fruition. So he and I got to know each other through Upwind and met for the first time at Gen Con just as Upwind was finally finishing its production cycle. And he was like, hey, I know Stuart wanted to eventually do A New Blue Planet. Are you interested? So I said, well, maybe. I'm pretty burned out from Upwind and I want to talk. But Alan had done so right by Upwind and was so enthusiastic. And I had a few friends and, and some old-time um, internet buddies that were so Blue Planet positive that I think I got talked into it one drunk night at, at Gen Con because I, the next day I'm like, did we talk? Did I commit to it? He's like, yeah, you said you were going to do it. I'm like, oh, okay. And I was pretty, I was pretty excited because the enthusiasm of Gen Con makes everybody excited for games. Sure. But, but by the time I got home, I'm like, oh God, whatever. And then, you know, there was a, a kind of a year of, of sort of prepping what this is going to look like. And then COVID hits and, now I'm like in the midst of COVID and everything is slowed down and everything is stopped and family health issues that slowed things down. And finally, about a year after we had originally thought we would do it, we committed to doing a, a Blue Planet um, Kickstarter. And that's where the third edition really sort of took off. So I'd be curious, Jeff, you know, obviously, you know, the desire to do a third edition, you're roped into it at a, a drunk night at a hotel bar at Gen Con. But was there was there some goals that you had set for yourself, either in four mind or in the back of your mind that's saying, if I ever did a third edition, this is oh, what I want sure. to do with it. Like, so let's sure. talk about that. So what are some of the things that you were hoping maybe someday if there's a third edition, this is what I would do? I had imagined when I it was with copious amounts of free time that I could use all the resources that are available now to generate a really sort of comprehensive, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, quintessential is not quite the right word, but like the, the final version of Blue Planet, right? This is all the content. That, definitive, that's the word I was looking for. Definitive version of Blue Planet. Drawing from this material that had been created and then adding in some new stuff. Um, and I'd had, I'd had that in the back of my mind for a long time. Long enough that I that the world had moved on technologically to the point where, as we faced a third edition, I realized both the technology of game design, you know, what we use in our game and our role playing games as sort of modern game design had changed substantively and needed to be addressed. But also, like yeah. the real world technology had changed so much that what we had as speculative fiction either was clearly not going to happen was spot on or we had just missed entirely. And so that all needed to be addressed yeah. as well. So, so it was feeling stale in those regards by the time we got here, but blue planet had always been black and white in a world that begged for full color interpretation, right? It needed its art in a way that I think a lot of games didn't because they had other reference material. And, and it just, so I knew that, in a perfect world, I would have full color art for it. But those were sort of where I 
had been sort of imagining it going, but I had, ne- I had put what step one in place to make that happen because um, I hadn't been de- designing games and then Upwind had taken up all my, my game design um, energy. So Jeff, something that, um, and I'm going to fumble, I'm going to fumble this question. So be patient with me. Um, you know, I, as a creator myself, nothing like blue planet. I just put out the shitty podcast, but, um, you say you that know, and you I, shouldn't I, it's, because it's, it's really great podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Um, people will come back to me and, and they'll give me compliments. Right. And, and, and I appreciate all the compliments, but there's, there's certain things people will compliment me on that they're surprised how much it means to me. And I, and I wonder, is there things people say about Blue Planet that really just like hit you deeper than just, you know, I love this game. I have so much fun with this game. Is there things people say about Blue Planet that mean a lot to you? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, and what is I that? Have, uh, well, I think maybe if I distill it down, any sense they give me that they lived in the world. Yeah. Right. If, if I come away from the conversation with the sense that they were transported to Poseidon, um, whatever that was for them. That's what I, I love to hear. We lucked out. A lot of the criticisms were sort of in very specific lines. People didn't love the first edition mechanics, but they weren't, they weren't too hard on it. They were, they were fair. Um, the, the two criticisms that we get routinely, and when I say routinely, even that is pretty rare, was um, environmentalism, right? There's very strong environmentalism, environmental themes um, through it. And so if, the, if that didn't, if that wasn't somebody's jam and they decided to, to sort of hold that up as something they didn't like, I was happy to let them say it, but I, I there was one I could do about it. That was one of the themes that we put into it on purpose. So it never really bothered me. Um, the, the other was the accessibility. Uh, in terms of like, there's so much, I don't know even how to start my game, um, which is also a fair critique for people that, that aren't lore hounds, right? That don't read their books for the, for the lore, uh, first. And, and so we've tried to address that, but, um, yeah, I think even, I guess what I'm getting at is that people always talk about how they take the criticisms to heart and for every 10 positive things, people say that one negative thing is what sticks in their head. I haven't really yeah. had that happen um, because, because the things that people say are legitimate, like they're critiques that are fair and true, um, or they're just things that we just differ our opinion and nothing to be done about it. So that doesn't bother me. And it's a core, you know, that environmental piece is a core piece there, right? So if, you know, yeah, and, and I think it was, <laughs> I think it was Robin Laws that said on my show, he's just like, you just have to understand that there's some people that this is not your game mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's okay. Like, this is not for you. Um, and, and so that's interesting. So we talked about, you know, the idea of finally having color art, right? The idea of being able to update and, you know, rebuild the technology and the futuristic aspect of it after it's kind of showed its age. So I think there's a lot to be excited about, about third edition. Is there anything you're worried about? There's anything that, um, concerns you or keeps you up or night for this, um, third edition? Um, no, no, I, I wouldn't say that keeps me up. At night. That's pretty, if I, if I'm taking that. In a, you know, I realize it's not meant literally, but, but it, but that I sleep is a, right. It's it's a it's a level of concern. I'll tell you what. I, right. I say that and laugh, but then I was awake this morning and could not get back to sleep because I'm just trying to get the books done. That's keeping me yeah. awake. Yeah. 
right? The, yeah. the, the content's not keeping me awake. It's just getting them done and seeing how much there's still to do. And that, that is a, a stressor. Um, but in terms of what's in the books keeping me awake, I want to make sure that nobody feels left out, right? How um, so? Well, you know, people who are anti-woke will use it as a slang. Like they'll use the derogatory, like, oh, stupid woke role playing these days, right? Um, people who are grognards might be oblivious to things, right? They're, We've had maybe pretty not on good. purpose. Yeah, maybe not on purpose, but 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 oblivious nonetheless. Um, I'm I'm a high school teacher. I live at a boarding school with 130 teenagers. I I have that advantage in trying to be aware of of the younger generation's view of the world. Um, but I'm not by any means perfect or, or 100% clear in, in all of that. And, and so I want to I wanna make sure that we are bringing enough of the real modern world into Interesting. the setting that we're not leaving anybody out and that we're not leaving yeah. enough of the old stuff in that's going to alienate anybody. Um, and I don't mean this as side speak for I want it to be woke because that's not it. But the book is since the nineties has been very much environmentalism in a role-playing game and anti-colonialism in a role-playing game. And, um, and I know a lot of games are dealing with those things now, um, but I want those things to be even more um, obvious and exaggerated and upfront than they were in the previous edition. I, I just want, I want the mechanics to feel like they are a strong evolution of what, what people like about modern game design again, without leaving people behind, but also right. um, making them accessible in a way that certainly the first edition rules would not be, but even our second edition were more simulationist in a way that, that I want to make sure we're not now, or that, that we can be, I think I've struck a nice note between what feels realistic, but not necessarily simulationist. Um, in a way that a lot of narrative systems don't feel realistic, but are just for telling the, telling the story. And I'm hoping we've struck that. But those are sort of been some of the main design threads. And I think we've, I think we've landed there. And so I, to circle back, I, those aren't things aren't keeping me awake at night. Yeah. All, all of the art is now in my possession. <laughs> so <laughs> that's no longer keeping me awake. Um, most of the text <laughs> is in my possession. Um, the editing is, is happening apace. Um, and, and it's just a matter of, of slogging through the, the, the slowdown that COVID has created to get to the end. Um, so a few comments there. One, um, I, I've said this, um, I don't even know if I've said it on the podcast, but nobody that listens to me enough will be surprised by this comment. Um, everybody who, as soon as I hear, when somebody uses woke as a derogatory term, I have a hard time taking them seriously because I've, they've yet to define it for me, right? So every time I've been encountered with someone using woke as a derogatory, well, he's being woke, I go, what, what does that mean? What does woke mean? No answers, right? Because, because they can't use code words anymore, right? Then they have to say what they're really trying to say, but they can't use something that's easy to do that. So I love that that matters to you. Um, but what I'd be really interested about is, because this is fascinating when I think about it now that we're talking, Going back through first and second edition, 
as you're preparing for third, and you hinted at this, that you have awareness now that you didn't have 15 years ago, 20 years ago. What did you see in first and second edition that you said, yeah, shit, you know, this was not written thinking this, but now with older eyes and a better awareness and an and understanding of the world, like this has to go. Yeah. Um, this has to change. There's, there's, there's been a, a number of things, but I, I will proudly say that there was nothing that I, I think was cringe. Um, I also think that given when it was originally written, it, w- it was surprisingly, I, I was surprised going back through it that it wasn't cringe in some places. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, the, some of the things I can think of off the top of my head are, are, are small, but meaningful. The written pronoun, default pronoun was he in descriptions, right? It's now they. Um, That's awesome. It's, I mean, that, that is not new. That is not right. particularly woke even, right? Um, no, let, I mean, let's pull out some Shakespeare. I'll show you they. I'll, I'll bring out right. the Bible and well, show you they. And, and I, don't even mean, I don't even mean historically, but I mean in game design, in game writing. People have been doing right. it for over a decade, right? In fact, yeah. I, I remember that even coming up at the time we were writing the first edition. And so that's, that's a change. It's a small one. It's a token one, but it's meaningful. I, I think it's meaningful. I think it, it means something. We, we use the word Aborigines throughout mm-hmm. um, in a very scientific, the intention was in a very scientific way. But that word has, is now owned by other people that have a right to it that, that I don't anymore. Um, or maybe if I ever did, um, it's scientific meaning was, was pseudo at, at best, um, and, and has been lost in, in the vernacular. So, um, we've, we've changed the, the indigenous intelligence on Poseidon to the Nereids, which I wish we had done that originally because they are the servants <laughs> of Poseidon, right? Like it right. seems like a no brainer to make that decision, but there we are. There are. Just little things like that. And those are sort of two of the sort of most immediate examples of, of, yeah. of just ways that we could make the game more inclusive. Um, uh, there were just mentions of things like their parents or their mother and father or, or things like that. And even now in our, in our present day world, family structures are much more diverse than that. You can, you can imagine it and it exists, right? From simple like extended families where grandparents are... The, the primary caregivers for, for their grandchildren to complicated extended families of, of, of multiple partners. Um, and so yeah. I can't imagine that I can't imagine in the 2199 fiction of the setting that there's not many more. So we've tried <laughs> to include sort of cultural nods to, to things like that, that just make it seem like mundane part of, of the world of 2199. I think that yeah. makes the fiction stronger. I think it makes more evocative. I think it makes it more interesting. It definitely makes it more inclusive to everybody. Um, and, it, and I think it just makes the setting seem like something different. And that's what you want it to be. That's what I want it to be in a role-playing game. I want to inhabit a different world. And, and the future 20 years ago is different than what we envision and think about the future now, right? A lot Absolutely. has happened in 20 years and it changes, it changes the projections that we, that we project forward. Um, all right. So one of the last things I'd like to do, Jeff, with you is something I do with uh, most people that I have come on the show, because we spend so much time talking about what you make. I'm also interested in what you consume. So I'd like to get an idea 
it hopefully something recently that you have gotten your teeth into and can't let go. And it can be a show that you've been binge watching that has just occupied your time or a book or a series of books or a video game or another role playing game. What is a recent obsession of something that you as a consumer have really grabbed onto? Um, well, there's, there's some gaming related ones and then some non gaming related ones, but, um, I am, I was going to give a shout out to, um, my personal favorite role-playing game. Um, like, I mean, to answer your question, it's what I'm really into, uh, Eclipse Phase. I don't know how familiar you are with it. Um, not at all. It is, I, I, I jokingly refer to it as the game that I wish Blue Planet was when it grew up. Um, and I've even told the designers this. And the funny thing is, if you open Eclipse Phase and look at the um, sort of credited inspirations, Blue Planet is one of the inspirations, which I didn't even Isn't know when funny? I started playing Eclipse Phase. Um, so it kind of came full circle. Uh, it is horror sci-fi playing, role-playing in the near future. Um, and if, if you are if either the word sci-fi role-playing or horror role-playing, or better yet, sci-fi horror role-playing, trip your triggers you owe it to yourself to check it out it is extremely oh, well it is extremely well written it is super sexy it brings together all the pieces of transhumanism that you could possibly want um into a co- cogent exciting um scary uh future pseudo apocalypse that is just awesome has something for everybody oh. uh, and i've uh, the best campaign I've ever run, run of my life in my life was, in my opinion, was uh, an Eclipse Phase campaign, um, and it is, it's just such a, it's a great game. If I pulled out the forensic magnifying glass when I get my printed copy of Third Edition Blue Planet, will I see any Eclipse Phase fingerprints in there anywhere? Um, Has it influenced you as a designer? Mechanically, no, because uh, the systems are pretty, pretty divergent. Um, the thing that I liked best about how Eclipse Phase presented its world was it was just kind of matter of fact. Uh, it was a style of writing that I couldn't. <laughs> so. They didn't. They didn't. Well, they didn't dwell on the how did you get here. They dwelled on here you are, right? Interesting. Um, because Blue Planet at the time was different than, than at least stuff I'd played, we spent a lot of time on how you got there and justifying the technology and all that. And there's still some of that. There's still some of that, for yeah. sure, because, because I didn't want to rewrite everything. But that's what I admired most about how they presented their setting. I mean, it was an amazing setting anyway, but they presented this like, here you are. And, and I... Yep. If, if I could replicate something, I would unashamedly replicate that. I don't think I've nailed right. that, um, but that's sort of <laughs> what, what is really good about how they did it. Um, and they're just a lot sexier than I could be in, in creating <laughs> a world. What I'm hoping is that people will, who like Eclipse Phase will see Blue Planet and they'll be like, oh, this is like Eclipse Phase. That would be like a huge compliment cool. for me. Yeah. So. You know, we we talked about some of the touchstones of first edition, um, but first edition was a while ago. And, you know, now one of the touchstones of third edition is first and second edition. 
But is there anything that's come out recently or in the last, you know, six months, five years, 10 years that have are now touchstones of Blue Planet? So people what I'm trying to do is I want to give people an idea of like, if you like this, right, then you should check out Blue Planet. Sure. Um, Well, if you're if you're a grognard like me or or should I say us, (laughs) um, the the, the original touchstones were were, um, the movie Outland. The old Sean Connery marshals oh in space. Oh my God, Sean Connery! Right? <laughs> if you've never seen the movie, you need to so see. Good. it. Uh, yeah, he's a marshal oh, in it's space. So good. It's a high noon in space. That was that was upwind. Upwind. Or sorry, uh, Blue Planet. Blue Planet was supposed to be this frontier planet, this frontier water world that smacked a lot of sort of the Wild West. Um, yeah. And Outland, Outland did a great job of bringing that into the science fiction. And then, of course, Firefly. But Firefly postdated the first edition of Up. So I, I might refer back to it, but technologically it's kind of a different world. It's a little more serious sort of setting, but the, the cowboys in space kind of thing is, is still there. Uh, aliens, of course, the abyss. Um, I, we always get accused of being, oh, is this the water world game? No, 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 no. <laughs> didn't, like, didn't like that movie. Don't want it associated with my game. No, no, no. Because uh, it came out right before <laughs> Blue Planet did, and we thought it was going to crash. Oh, see, it re- I didn't know yep, that. Yep, yep. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so, but more recently, things that like strongly postdated. I think uh, there's a there's a um, a really strong similarity between Avatar, the James Cameron Avatar, and Blue oh, Planet. Oh yeah. And, and in terms in terms of the two, that you can sort of map one right over the other. In that you have an isolated setting with an indigenous intelligence, with people trying to steal a very specific resource from the planet that is causing un- irrevocable ecological harm. Like, of course, we predated Avatar by a decade, but it, sometimes in you know in the wee hours of the night, I'm like, did he read Blue Planet? <laughs> Right? I just want like, to look at James Cameron's bookshelf. That's all I want to right, say. <laughs> right, right. Um, just so it maps over really, really point for point, beat for beat in terms of the setting and, and the intention of, the, of what the stories, yeah. the kinds of stories you can tell. So as you can imagine, I am super excited, despite what everyone dis, dis is on, seems like, I don't know why, but everyone seems to be on Avatar now, decades later when it's been out of the consciousness. And it's almost as if they they want to hate it already before it's out. But the next one is about the ocean. How can I not be excited by that one? Oh, yeah. To see what they do with it, right? So we'll see. We'll see. Here's my um, thing about Avatar, which I really, you're going to really regret bringing it up. Um, one, I'm embarrassed that I never made the connection, right? Like you, I, like I hear you explain to me how they overlay each other. I'm like, well, shit, of course they do. Um, so that's funny that I never thought about them being similar. Um, I'm OG, not a fan of Avatar. Um, so mm-hmm. it's not something that over time, um, I thought it was beautiful, obviously. And, and I'm a, and this is coming from a huge Cameron fan, huge mm-hmm. Cameron fan. But it was the writing that killed me. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 there was the writing that killed me. So what I'm like, I, I want what I want to see and I hope to see. Um, and this is just my dumb opinion, but I, I want to see. I think there's great sto- like the setting. Phenomenal. Right. The mm-hmm. concepts. Phenomenal. Um, it just, you know, it was just really bad dancing with wolves for me as, as, right, as, right. as from a written standpoint which sucked right sure it's kind of like Waterworld. Waterworld had a, gr- a potentially great setting though that they had no idea they had no ba- backing in science whatsoever right was, right, you know, right 
it was mad max with less thought and that 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 says something but um but but there was there was thought behind avatar it's just i wish the wish the story was better so i'm very hopeful for three because i love cameron and i root for him every single time well, um, fingers crossed. God, that's crazy yeah fingers crossed exactly and boy it's taken him a little time to to make it so that's either really end up gonna be really good or really bad um right. that that's done that so i would also point to one more modern um touchstone that i think is please particularly relevant is the expanse tv series oh god um, it's so i good. think i think visually that's always that, visually that's what blue planet has always looked like to me the tech level yeah. and the interaction and, and I, I i think that is um a great sort of visual introduction to or touchstone to this to the game and, and, and tell me if you agree with this the other connection i've because i've thought of this too unlike avatar which went way over my head um is the respect for science both in blue planet and the expanse right there's yeah, hard science behind the expanse and hard science behind blue planet that has been one of our guideposts um you know hard science in science fiction is only go so far but when we are able to we have tried to keep it that way we we promoted as hard science fiction and and the reviewers have called it hard science fiction so it seems to be in that space pretty pretty definitively and there just aren't that many sci-fi games that are, which is another reason why I think we've stuck around is because it, there's just other, aren't a lot of other options. Yeah. And there's, you know, to, to, you know, there's obviously nothing wrong with Firefly that, that is not a hard science, you know, thing versus Expanse. I love them both. Right. Um, and, and, and both for different reasons. So Jeff, we talked a little bit before we even went on mic at first. Um, my expectations for this discussion were very, very high. Um, so you, you were walking into a very potential dangerous situation as far as what I was hoping to do. And it was, ex glad you're telling me that now and not uh, when we started. <laughs> well, and, and it was far exceeded Jeff. In fact, um, I, um, I'm unfortunately for you going to be bugging you again, um, to come on because I feel like we've only touched on a third of the things I wanted to talk about, but, um, I don't know if anybody wants to listen to a six hour podcast. Um, so <laughs> first and foremost, there's a lot of things to do on a Tuesday night other than talking to me. So I really appreciate you making the time. Oh, it's been a blast. I really appreciate it. Not only your generosity and in inviting me on, but um, just the way you, you run the, the prep and, and the way you run the interview. I really appreciate it. Um, I've gone through most of your back catalog at this point um, oh. since discovering your, your podcast, and I just really enjoy it. Oh, wow. Now I'm super flattered. Thank you. Um, and, you know, while we're throwing around compliments, for those of you listening right now, you made it all the way to the end. I want you to know I appreciate you listening. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Subscribe to Tabletop Talk and share it with your friends. Check out our content on YouTube and Twitch. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and stay updated on everything coming from Third Floor. All the links are in the show notes. Take care, floorheads. Well, that, my friend, was a phenomenal first set. Great. Thank you. Yeah, and, um, and I apologize. We have a bit of a delay, but I think we're figuring it out, which is great. Yeah, I realized that and I, I, I kept cutting you off. I didn't mean to.
I felt like I was cutting you off. That's how it, 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 when, when you have that delay, if you feel like you're being rude to each other, but you, nobody's doing it on purpose. <laughs> All right. Um, so when we come back from this, Jeff, what makes sense? Should we dive into first edition Blue Planet at this point and then go from there? What what, what do you think logically makes sense in our conversation? Um, maybe if you have area that you want to cover about like bringing a game to publication in the 90s or or the reception it. first edition had i think if we want to talk about the game and i don't care if we do or not if we want to talk about the game specifically it might make sense to reserve that for the new edition because you know the old the first edition is was made irrelevant by the second edition and now the second edition will be irrelevant by the third edition and so it might not be worth the airtime that sounds good. Um, so we'll talk about getting getting the book and making it a real book and getting it out there, the reception that you got from it. Um, I'll talk about uh, why second edition. And we can talk mm-hmm. about maybe mm-hmm. what was some of the edition changes. Yeah, I got specific we'll reasons get, for that. El- yep. And then we'll get elbow deep when we talk about uh, third edition. We'll talk about the mechanics and the world and stuff like that. I think it's a great okay. plan. Okay. So... Um, what I'm amazed at, Jeff, every time is like I go in with a call sheet just to give some structure, right? Because I, 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 I've heard from guests like it's so frustrating when they say they'll come on a podcast and, you know, they have no idea what the hell is going to happen. So mm-hmm. but I love what we're doing, mm-hmm. man, which is just we're just talking. And and I cannot tell you how interesting this has been. This is a very, very good episode, man. Good. I'm glad. Oh, this is great. And we're talking with. Yeah, cool I, really, about, I, really, I really appreciate it. Oh, man. And, and we're talking about stuff that I haven't talked about with, you know, other guests, which is just fantastic. fantastic. All right. Good. Well, you're also making me think of things I haven't thought of in years. So that makes me happy. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, oh, hey. Are you still here? Wow. Um, well, the episode is over, but if you're bored, why not go to patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down, scroll down and yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care.